And the rest of us, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible, if you have a smartphone and you want to follow along, I really would encourage that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to look at a few different verses in this section. In 1930, the Russian communist leader, Nikolai Bukharin, traveled from Moscow to Kiev. He was an influential leader. He was on the inner circle of Vladimir Lenin and then later Joseph Stalin. In 1930, when he went to Kiev, his mission was te to tear down the Christian worldview of the U Ukrainians. He stood up in a large gathering, and for about an hour, he threw a heavy barrage of verbal artillery against Christianity while espousing his superior view of atheism. And then when he ended his superb presentation, he was sure that his mission was accomplished. He looked around the room, and it just seemed like people were so dejected after his talk. And so the communist leader gruffly said, are, are there any questions? The room was quiet. And he looked around, and then he began to walk off the stage. And then a man in the audience stood up. And he very humbly asked for permission to speak, and it was granted and so the room was quiet, and the man walked up on the stage. And he walked over to Bukharin. He looked at everyone in the room. And then he said, he is risen. And they said, he is risen indeed. The whole room erupted to their feet. He is risen. That is a central tenet of Christianity, it has been from the beginning. Christianity stands or falls on this truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On that first Easter Sunday morning when the women went to the tomb, they encountered an angel, and he said, he is not here, he is risen. And they were shocked. It was A.B. Simpson, the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, who said, Easter is a new day of the soul. Easter is a new day of the soul. Because with it, it brings the possibility of new birth. And that's good news. So we're going to ask three questions as we look at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. The first question is this. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? Why is the resurrection of Jesus so important? I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 6 as we start. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Now, brothers and sisters, I want, you, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by this gospel... You are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I've received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. It wasn't in church, but they had fallen asleep in Jesus. So why is the resurrection so important? Well, first of all, it's both the foundation and proof of our salvation. We see that in verses 1 and 2, the foundation and proof of our salvation. And so Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, the believers, and so he addresses them as brothers and sisters, and he and he wants to remind them. And, you know, I think you've heard me say this before, but so much of the Christian faith is being about being reminded of what we know because sometimes things just kind of slip off uh, to the side. And, and 
We just need to be reminded sometimes. And that's what Paul is doing here. He wants to remind them of the gospel that he had preached to them. And of course, the gospel refers to the good news. It was the message that the the Apostle Paul had communicated to the Corinthians and the message that they understood and that the message that they had believed. And Paul said they had been saved through that message. And this was so important that the Apostle Paul went from city to city throughout the, the, uh, the ancient world, around the Mediterranean world. And he would he would look for opportunities to communicate this message. He would create ways to communicate this message. And he wanted to be heard. This gospel that he had preached to them, and then he says, which you received, on which you have taken your stand. And they, they, they had put their trust in this message. It was foundational to their Christian faith. And they took their stand on this gospel, trusting in it and trusting in it alone. It says in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. This message of good news that has the power to save, to save people from the penalty of their own sin. And the Corinthian believers understood this and they embraced it for themselves. They made it personal. Why is the resurrection so important? Well, secondly, it's a message of salvation for all people. We see this in verses 3 through 6. It's for all people. Not only was this message for the church at Corinthians in the first century, but it's the message that Jesus gave his church and promised that he would be with them until the end of the age as they took this message to the entire world and made disciples for Jesus. It's for all people. He says in verse 3, for what I received I pass on to you as of first importance. And now Paul is going to identify just exactly what this message is that he's been talking about, the gospel. He did not invent this message. He did not create it. He received it directly from Jesus. And you can see the story unfold in Acts chapter 9. This message is of the first importance. It's foundational to the Christian faith. It's central to Christianity. And finally, here it is. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 53 that Messiah would suffer and die for sins. It was recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was according to the scriptures. that Christ would die for our sins was God's solution to the human sin problem, the human condition that unfolds in scriptures. The Bible describes that humanity as being self-centered and self-focused. And God, God put down standards. And when, when we violate those standards, when we fail at his standards... The Bible calls it sin. And the interesting thing is we're just all sinners. Every person is a sinner. We all have sinned and fallen short of God's standards. Now, the issue for us is, and we do this in, in religion, we do this in Christianity, we compare ourselves with others and, well, I'm a sinner, but I'm not as bad as them, you know. I'm a better sinner than they are. And, and we begin to rate ourselves, but all have sinned and all fall short. And there are consequences for that. And the consequences, the Bible describes as the wages of sin is death. And 
And the Apostle Paul is talking about not just physical death, he's talking about a spiritual death, a separation from God for an eternity. It's called hell. It'll be a place of eternal punishment. Jesus described it. If you don't like it, you can take it up with Jesus because we'll all get the chance to. Um, But we're all sinners. We want to do things our way. And we don't like it when somebody tells us what we should be doing. And we don't like it, especially if it's God, the one is telling us what we should be doing. So Christ died for our sins. See, there was this problem, and God is the one who moved to solve this problem, this problem of humanity. And God so loved the world that he he gave his son. He sent Jesus for us. Romans 5 eight says, but God demonstrates, demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was, it was because of God's love. Now, may I remind you how much God loves you? He loves you even though we are all sinners. And, and he said, that's why he sent Jesus. And Christ died for our sins. That means... The way, you know, there are consequences, and the wages of sin is death. Those consequences are what I deserve, but Jesus is the one who took my death, and he took your death, and he paid your sin penalty. Whether you care or not, sitting here today, your sin penalty has been paid for, and that's really good news. But God wants us to embrace his message of salvation by faith. He wants us to trust him. He, it's his requirement. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. In verse 4, he was buried. He was buried after the crucifixion. It demonstrated he was really dead. He just didn't swoon. He just didn't pass out. One of the amazing things is the experienced executioners knew that Jesus was dead. They didn't have any problem pulling him off the cross and letting his body go. And there were disciples who came for the body. We know Joseph and Nicodemus came and got permission to take the body for, and prepare it for burial. They knew Jesus was really dead. And There were women who helped out, and they knew that Jesus had really died. And it was a proof of his death. And that's why it's recorded here. He really died. Verse 4, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded that. That he was raised on the third day. And the resurrection was proof of God's power, the proof that Jesus followed through on what he had promised. It was the proof that there was a victory over sin and a victory over death, and Jesus stood there and proved it. And there would be victory over Satan as well. He was raised on the third day, according to scriptures. Think about that. This is one of those things that we forget. Jesus is alive right now. He is resurrected. He is sitting at the right hand of God. If you could be at the right hand of God this very instant, you would see him in his resurrected body. And you could see the nail prints and you could see the wounds that he experienced on the cross. In verse 5, it says, Then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Jesus appeared to eyewitnesses, people that would be able to tell this story, people that would be able to write this down. Valid historical information. Yes, there is supernatural in it, and and we tend to be anti-supernaturalists, at least that's how we are taught to think, to be anti. It can't be true if it's supernatural. It's so unscientific, but what if The supernatural breaks all scientific laws when God decides to. We call it a miracle, by the way. And there were miracles in the Bible. 
lot of miracles, but they didn't happen every day in every situation. There's a whole lot of normal, the kinds of things you and I live with, and yet God's power can still work through everyday situations. Without a class A miracle, he does answer prayer. It's okay if you want to call that a miracle, but it's not breaking necessarily the laws of the physical laws of the universe. So he appeared to Cephas, and Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, Peter the Apostle. Then he appeared to the other disciples of the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. And there's some event that happened. It may well have been that Matthew 28 time when when Jesus told his disciples, this, you know, remember the crucifixion was in Jerusalem, the disciples had been there, and Jesus told his disciples that he would meet them in Galilee, go back home, go back north, and he would meet them, and that's where he said, all authority is given to me on heaven and on earth, and he says, go and make disciples. That's very likely where the 500 were that Jesus appeared to, and they were eyewitnesses, and they would be able to tell this story. And then, and then, uh, the Apostle Paul says, though some have fallen asleep, meaning some have already died or, and uh, are with Jesus, but, but they've already experienced the physical death. And we have to remember that when the Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians, it's probably 30 years after the resurrection. That's time for some of those people to die. You know, they, did, they didn't live 100 years very often back then. You know, if you reach 60, that was mature so it would it, it would be easy for people to have gone on to be with the lord why is the resurrection so important well if jesus was not raised from the dead we are not saved from our own sin penalty this is a logical reality the apostle paul understood this very clearly 1 corinthians chapter 15 verse 17 jumping down in in the chapter by the way, the 1 Corinthians 15, the whole chapter is about the resurrection. We don't talk about it a lot. We're kind of uncomfortable with it sometimes, but it has been a, a major tenet of the Christian faith since the beginning that there would be a resurrection of the living and the dead. It was in the Old Testament. It's clearly in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Logical outcome. No resurrection. No victory over sin and death. Um, their faith and our faith is a waste. It's useless and it is empty. It's just imaginary. It's only subjective. There is no reality. And sometimes people get the idea that, you know, Christianity is this thing where you just kind of psych yourself up to believe it, you know, subjective. I just have this subjective faith. I just hope it's true. No, it really happened. The promises are really true. And when you place your faith in Jesus, it really changes you. And your sins really are forgiven. And I remember what it was like as a 25-year-old adult coming out of atheism and waking up with a clean slate. Not understanding at all, but understanding my sins have been forgiven. I can tell you what, I don't deserve that. And I felt, you know, I'm not really emotional. I felt like I had a clean slate. It made all the difference. If we are dead in our sins, we are lost forever. But Christ was raised from the dead, wasn't he? He is risen indeed, and it makes all the difference. The late Ray Steadman once said, the resurrection is not only the good news, it is the best news imaginable. So why is the resurrection so important? Well, it's the only avenue for us to enter the eternal kingdom of God. There is no other. It is a requirement of God. 
Not only was Jesus raised from the dead, but all those who place their faith in him will also experience a resurrection of their body to a new life. You know, sometimes people just sort of think, well, Christians just, you know, they want that to happen. They, they just... I never wanted it to happen. It's just what God said. I'm starting to pay attention. It's true. Scriptures proclaim it. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. There's no way this physical body can enter the eternal kingdom of God. No way. Now, there is, a, there is the idea that, okay, as a follower of Christ, when you or I face physical death, if you are a follower of Christ, your spiritual, immaterial, whatever we want to call it, soul or spirit, will go to be with Jesus immediately, but your body will not. Your body will be for the grave or for however it gets disposed. It's going to get disposed. But that's not the end. And that's what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a change that has to happen. The perishable must put on the imperishable. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. A body that perishes is not worthy to inherit the imperishable. And this will be explained further in just a minute. The second question I want to ask is from verses 51 through 57. How does the resurrection of Jesus change us? Now, let's just read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57. So you can see this, at least hear it in a chunk. Here's what Paul says. He says, listen... I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the passage we're looking at. Now, if you're a follower of Christ, right now, the resurrection of Jesus has already made a lot of changes in your life, changes for you. Um, Jesus' victory over sin and death give us new resources that we have available right now. Resources that help us to follow Christ day by day. We have the Holy Spirit in us to empower us, and He can control us when we yield to Him. That's a resource because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have the power, the same power that was given to Jesus that resurrected him from the grave. That is available to us to live our lives every day. We have the possibility to use prayer as a way to talk with God and connect with him and communicate with him and hear him. We have the ability to be led out of temptation if we rely on God. We can have the strength to live for him. We have the word of God so that we can understand righteousness and justice, know how to make wise decisions, and know what we must do to follow Christ. We have resources right now. But that's not all there is. We're talking now about the future. First of all, we will inherit a new transformed body, verses 51 through 53. So Paul says here, listen, I tell you a mystery. That's like a key word. That's like a tip-off here, a technical concept, mystery. What does that mean? It means 
This has never been revealed before, before the Apostle Paul communicates this truth to this group. It wasn't in the Old Testament. It wasn't written down yet. And now it is. I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. A wonderful verse for a church nursery. But that's not what he's talking about. Some of you won't, won't even get that one. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Change is coming. Our bodies will be changed. Not all will sleep, meaning not all are going to experience physical death before this happens. But everyone will experience the change whether they are dead in Christ, they've already fallen asleep in Jesus, or whether they are alive when this great event happens, the resurrection of the believer. When is this going to happen, you ask? Well, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. There's going to be a trumpet sound. I think it's going to be loud. There are many trumpets in the Bible. There are many trumpets in the book of Revelation. This one is for the church. It's for the resurrection of the believer. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. Whether we are alive already or whether we have already gone to be with the Lord. We're all going to be changed. The dead in Christ first. Verse 53, for the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable. This is a requirement to enter God's eternal kingdom. It must happen. It must change. The perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. To enter the eternal kingdom of God. What's that all about? Well, for you to get to Revelation chapter 1 and 22 and make it in, you've got to be changed. Your body will not hang out there. You have to have a new body to get there, to be in the eternal kingdom of God when heaven comes down to meet with the earth. Now, one of the questions we often ask is, well, what kind of body are we going to have? I don't know. You know, we know that when Jesus was resurrected, he had the same body that he left with. And we, he even had the scars, the nail prints, puncture wounds. And I think that's only for us. It's for proof. He wants us to know he's the one when we see him, no mistake. I don't know to get a new body. It's got to be better than this one. How old are you going to be? I don't know. But, you know, we all, well, let's pick the perfect age or the perfect, I don't know what's going to be. You're going to like it. And uh, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be this supreme contentment. Oh, now I get it. This is amazing. I had no clue what God had planned. This mystery that the Apostle Paul talks about here is the same mystery, the same event called the rapture of the church. This is what we talked about last week. Um, it's about the resurrection of believers in Jesus Christ. It's, it's the church. It's no one else other than the church from Acts chapter 2 until this event. And it's been a, an important part of the Christian faith since Jesus went back to heaven. Now, there's all kinds of debate on when it's going to happen. I have my opinions. I've already shared them. First, let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 uh, through 17 again. So, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, a different church. He says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, believers who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, when Jesus comes back, it's very clearly about when Jesus returns, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Next slide. 
For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel. We don't know who that is. It could be Michael. And with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we see that similarity with 1 Corinthians 15. There's an order, dead in Christ, resurrection first. After that, we who are still alive, and Paul thought he was one of those people, and are left, will be caught up. And there it is. That caught up in the air. This is the rapture. It's not the second coming. The second coming is when Jesus returns to the earth in judgment. Revelation chapter 19. This happens before then. And the church goes up to be with Jesus. They're caught up. And that's where we get the word rapture from the Latin word raptura. The word English, there's no English word in the English Bible. Rapture, it's this. It's caught up, okay? Caught up. Together, the dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. That's the same event as 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 through 57. So how does the resurrection of Jesus change us? Well, Verses 54 through 57, we will experience final victory over sin and death. A final victory. Verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when we've had this change, when I get that new body and you get that new body, and the mortal with immortality, no longer going to face death, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Physical death no longer has power over us. Both physical and spiritual death no longer have power over us. Verse 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death will not win. It won't even sting anymore. When we face physical issues, when we face physical suffering, and there has been Christians all over the world who have faced horrible suffering for their faith. People in Ukraine today, believers, who may suffer, that's the sting of death. When a loved one dies, it hurts. It's painful. We grieve. It doesn't go away. It takes a long time to grieve when we lose a loved one. That's the sting of death. There will no longer be a sting. The stinger has been removed. And then Paul says, but thanks be to God, he, is, he gives us a victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us a victory over sin and death through Jesus, through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And that's a cause for worship. That's a cause for thanksgiving. It's a cause for celebration. He is risen. He's risen indeed. That's something to get excited about. Church, how does the resurrection change us? We belong now to Jesus and we are to live for him. Jesus gave his life for us. It was his life in exchange for our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. Verse 14 says, By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. There's just a little promise tucked in the middle of the book. When you read through it, you don't even think about it. And then he goes on to say, verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Now think about this. He says, so shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? This is a hypothetical. And he says, never, that's totally illogical. He says, don't you know your bodies are members of Christ himself? 
members of the body of Christ. If you're a Christ follower, you belong to Christ. You have been united with Christ. You are in Christ. New Testament describes that over and over again. We are a part of Christ. That's our identity. And, and, you know, Jesus is the head, and we walk around this earth, and we are body parts of Jesus going to and fro in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and that's exactly what Jesus wants. But what, he, what doesn't work is when we use our bodies for things that, that dishonor him. It just doesn't fit with Jesus. It's a dishonor. It's an embarrassment for Jesus. That's one of the implications. Now, you, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, I don't, I don't go to prostitutes. Well, it's an application for how we use our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, a similar idea, just gives us a little more help. He says, do you not know that your bodies of the, are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Of course they did. The Holy Spirit lives in them. They knew that. Whom you've received from God, don't you know that? Yeah. Here's the implication. You're not your own. Did you get that? You are not your own. You, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to him first. You're the manager, not the owner. Verse 20, you were bought at a price. It was a, a price of infinite value, the life of Jesus. Implications, therefore, honor God with your bodies. You know, we are not our own. It's so easy to forget that. You know, get the idea that, you know, as long as I'm not bothering anybody else, I can just do what I want. You know, I'm an American. I have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Mm, I don't think so. Only if it fits in with the purposes of Jesus, if you are a Christ follower, and there's certainly a lot of freedom in Christ on what we can do to enjoy this life. But there are limitations and there are boundaries. It's not just, I can pursue what I want. That's kind of the American way. We are to honor God with our bodies, to handle ourselves in a way that would not be an embarrassment to Jesus. This idea should guide our thoughts and our decisions, our actions, our relationships, our future. It affects how we view ourselves. We are not to think ourselves too highly and we're not to think of ourselves too lowly. We're important in God's eyes. He loves us. We are created in the image of God and God is, has a restoration process in work right now. We come to the third question. Last verse. What is our response to the resurrection of Jesus? What is our response? Well, what does the scripture say? Verse 58. We must stand firm together as one in the Lord. From verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. I like the older version, this older translation that says, be steadfast, immovable. I wanted to be good at being immovable. We are to stand firm in our walks with Christ. There are so many things that want to push us off course. It doesn't mean we aren't active, you know, standing firm in one place. We can be moving, but we need to be firm on the truth, firm on the gospel, firm on why we, we are here, what is our purpose, what is our mission, and we need to help People connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Jesus. There are many things in our world that will seek to move us off the course, things like politics and pandemics and a whole lot of other things, things that stir up anger and animosity. Yes, we can take our, a stand for truth and justice in our culture, stand for justice, let, but God's word must be our guide. We are to stand firm 
in the Lord, not in human strength. Um, this whole idea of standing firm uh, reminds me of Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, where Paul writes, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. To be strong. To th- we have to think about that. What do I need to do? Do I, do, do, I, do I need to make sure that I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit right this minute? Am I filled with the Holy Spirit? Am, am I relying on truth right now? Or is something moving me off center here? Am I... Am I Am I engaging in ideas that will lead me away from from what Jesus is trying to accomplish in my life? Um, In that Ephesians chapter 6, he goes on to talk about we need to stand firm. He says it three times to stand firm. And it's about spiritual warfare. Our, our, Our problem is not just people. A bigger problem is the enemy and demons that serve him, that influence our world. And we have a struggle that's not flesh and blood. It's a spiritual struggle, spiritual warfare. Also, the Apostle Paul reminds us of, in Ephesians chapter 4, we must stand firm together as one in the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, as prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with another, one another in love. And this is how we stand together, humbly, not pridefully. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of, the, bond of peace. Unity has been given to the church because of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who connects us. And we are to live in a way that we can continue that unity. And it requires humility and gentleness and patience with one another. Because I know you're not perfect. You have some rough edges. You can be harsh sometimes. You can hurt my feelings sometimes. And we get so easily offended. And we can become easily offended by sometimes just petty things. And yet we are to work hard, make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. Now, I am impressed with the unity that God has given the Bridge Church. I am impressed. I am so grateful. I'm so thankful. As we move forward, life is going to change. And, you know, we're going to get a new location to go to on Sunday morning. That's going to be good. That's going to be great. But that's going to bring a lot of change. A lot of different things are going to need to happen. It won't be the same anymore. And you may come on Sunday morning and it may not feel the same. It's because there's going to be a lot of change. And sometimes people are going to get their feelings hurt and they're going to be offended. I hope they aren't over petty things and I hope we'll work hard to get those resolved. But we need to be prepared for that because the enemy would love to see the unity that you have destroyed. It's happening all over America. It's happened through the pandemic. Churches have gotten divisive doesn't have to be that way. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you. Stay the course. Stand on the word of God. Stand on the gospel. Don't ever move away from the gospel. We must always give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord. When? Always. How? Fully to the work of the Lord. That's not going to stop just because it's Easter. It's about living for Christ one day at a time, serving Jesus' church and his people one day at a time. And we have to rely on him for strength because we get oh so tired. But he 
can energize us and strengthen us for what he wants us to do. And it really makes a difference compared to trying to do things in our own strength. And when you serve the Lord, walking with him, your labor is not in vain. In vain. We are to be ambassadors for Jesus wherever we go, in the workplace, in our homes, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, to represent Jesus. That's what it means to give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Last thing I want to talk about is, is that we must respond to the good news of the gospel. We must respond to the good news of the gospel. We have this message, we have this good news that Christ died for us, that uh, he was buried and that he was raised again according to the scriptures. And we have a job that we need to take this message to our world. But we first have to receive it. Everybody needs to receive this message. It's for all people. If you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, I want to invite you to consider doing that today. God's offer is to all people, no matter who they are or what they have done. Sometimes people get the idea that, well, what I've done, nobody can forgive. Not true. This is for you. Remember that we're all sinners. That's how the Bible describes us. We've, we've all failed God in some way. Sin has consequences, and we have to face those consequences. And there's a barrier between God and us because of sin. And if, if nothing changes between now and when Jesus comes back or now and when I die then that barrier will be eternal. Jesus called it hell. The good news is your sin penalty, my sin penalty has been paid for. It's already been taken care of and it was paid in full. That's good news. A lot of people don't care. A lot of people don't think it's worth their time. Some people just won't believe it. I'm here to say it is true. Your sin penalty has already been paid for. And God's the one who has the requirements. And he's just asked us to trust him. To believe what he said about his son Jesus. To understand what Jesus has done for you. He's paid for it all. Can you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins? That's what God is uh, inviting us to do today. In Acts 16, 30 and 31, the Philippian jailer, um, in a panic, asked the Apostle Paul and Silas what he must do to be saved. And it's not about what he must do. It's already been done for him when Jesus died for all people. Verse 30, he then brought them out and asked, Sirs, this is the jailer to Paul and Silas. What must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. You respond to God by faith in Jesus. You will be saved. People in your household respond to Jesus by faith. They will be saved. It's not about what we do. We'll never be good enough. We'll never be able to do enough to earn any right standing before God. Only Jesus' perfect sacrifice can pay the penalty for our sins. We are invited to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved from the penalty of our sins. So my question is this. Have you placed your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? That you know that you are saved from the penalty of your sins? You're the one who knows the answer to that. And I just want to take the opportunity as we come to the end of our time this morning to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Christ if you wanted to. Prayer is one way that we express our faith. 
a prayer is not required to be saved, but faith is required to be saved. Prayer is one way to express our faith. It's a way of just talking to God and telling him what you're thinking, how you're feeling about this. And so uh, I'm going to just give you an example. It's not a formula. It's not like you have to know every word. It's just, it expresses the ideas that we've talked about this morning. And it goes something like this. Just think about this. Dear God, I, I admit that I'm a sinner. I, I have sinned before you. I trust Jesus Christ right now who has paid the penalty for my sin. And I want to ask him to help me become the person that he wants me to be. I want to follow him. Thank you that you offer forgiveness in Jesus' name. Could you make that your prayer? I'm going to just ask us to bow our heads right now. And if that prayer made sense to you, I'm just going to invite you to repeat it after me. And you can, you can just pray silently right where you are. Right from your heart, just talk to God. And if this, this made sense, just be honest with God. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner, that I've sinned before you. Thank you that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me. I recognize that I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to be forgiven. But because of what Jesus did, you offer this forgiveness. So right now, I just put my trust in Jesus. Help me to get a fresh start today. Help me to learn to follow Jesus one day at a time. Now, with everybody's heads still bowed, just, just for a minute, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind just slipping up your hand so I could see it? If you prayed with me this morning, just slip up your hand. Any, anybody else now? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Father, I'm grateful for those who um, have responded this morning and prayed to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Father, um, may they sense right now that their sins are forgiven. May they sense your presence in their life and that today they have a new start, a fresh start. May they be conscious just one day at a time of, of walking with you. Father, may that be true for all of us today in this room. May we be thankful for what you've done for us. May we rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus. May we live in a way that brings honor to you. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.